Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15. I was reminded while we were praying there, that as, as Chris was praying, the reason why John wrote his epistle. He wrote the gospel to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote the epistle in 1 John 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. We have eternal life. It's not something we get in the future. When we put our faith and trust in God, we have. And he says, the reason I'm writing this is that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And it just goes on and on. Eternal Numbers chapter 15. And we read the first 14 verses just. A lot of it's about offerings and things. But we'll just read it in any case. All very relevant. But at this stage I don't think we look at the offerings. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying. Speak unto the children of Israel. And say unto them. When ye come into the land. Of your habitations. Which I give unto you. And will make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice in performing a vow or in a free will offering or in your solemn feasts to make a sweet savour unto the Lord of the herd or of the flock. Then shall he that offereth his offering unto the Lord bring a meat offering of a tenth deal of flowers. Meat offering, meal offering is probably easier to get the idea. Of a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of and hin of oil and the fourth part of an hin of wine for a drink offering shalt thou prepare with the burnt offering or sacrifice for one lamb or for a ram thou shalt prepare for a meat offering two tenths deals of flour mingled with the third part of a hin of oil and for a drink offering thou shalt offer the third part of an hin of wine for a sweet savour unto the Lord and when thou preparest a bullock for a burnt offering or for a sacrifice in performing a vow or peace offering unto the Lord, then, thou sh then shall he bring with a bullock a meat offering of three-tenth deals of flour mingled with half an hin of oil. And thou shalt bring for a drink offering half a hin of wine for an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Thus shall it be done for one bullock or for one ram or for a lamb or a kid. According to the number that ye shall prepare, so shall ye do every one according to thy number. And all that are born in the country shall do these things after this manner in offering an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And if a stranger sojourn with thee, or whosoever be among you in your generations, and will offer an offering made by fire, or of a sweet savour unto the Lord, as ye do, so he shall do. As, you, as ye do, so he shall do. God will bless that reading to us as we look at it later. You know, strangely enough, in the last week I have read two little articles and I just thought I'd mention this by the way I don't, I don't remember where I read the first one it was one of the books I have at home but another little booklet came in yesterday or <coughs> yesterday morning I think it was and 
I, I was scanning through it and I found the these I'll read a little section from it because it's all very relevant. The first article I read said that we may, as we stand up and speak, we may say something which is totally scriptural, totally in accordance with God's word, but it may not be relevant to the situation in which we find ourselves. We may be just speaking out of a kind of head knowledge, but that the Holy Spirit may not have put that passage into our hearts for the people. And that challenged me. It's so easy to, to, to get a passage of scripture and to read it and then say, yes, I could speak about that and do it as a kind of exercise. But if it's not relevant, it may be accurate, it may be everything may be scriptural in it, but it may not be what God wants us to say in that particular time. And we need to pray that God will direct us in what we say. And this applies to when we're talking to people as well. What we say to people may be scriptural, but it may not be what they're, what the Holy Spirit would have us say at that particular time. And, and then again, this little booklet came in. And I just thought I'd read this. Knowledge of God's word, however, is not sufficient. There must be in its, pres in its present application to the consciences of the saints so as to meet their present need. For this, as someone has in substance observed, there must be either acquaintance by intercourse, etc., with their state, and this could never be very perfect or accurate, or else direct guidance from God. If we're going to say something, we should be saying it in direct guidance from God. That's challenging, isn't it? That what we say must be not what I want to say, but what God wants to be said. This is true of those who are in the fullest sense and most manifestly the gifts of Christ to his church as evangelists, pastors or teachers. It is God only who can guide them to those portions of truth which will reach the conscience and meet the needs of souls. It is he only who can enable them to present the truth in such a way as to secure these ends. God the Holy Ghost knows the need of each and all in the church, in the meeting. And he can guide those who speak to speak the suited, needed truth, whether they have the knowledge of the state of those addressed or not. How important then, implicit and unfeigned subjection to him. Have I, have you as you speak, got implicit and unfeigned subjection to God. One thing which would always mark ministry in the spirit would be the promptings of personal affection for Christ. Lovest thou me was the thrice repeated question to Peter connected with this injunction as oft repeated to feed Christ's flock. For the love of Christ constraineth us, Paul says. How different this from the many motives which might influence us naturally. How important that we should be able each time we minister to say with a good conscience, my motive for speaking was not a love of prominence or the force of habit or the restlessness which could not be content unless something were being done. 
but love to Christ and to his flock, for his sake who purchased it with his own precious blood. Surely it was this motive which was wanting in the wicked servant who hid his Lord's talent in the earth. Challenging, isn't it, as we stand and speak, that we pray that God will speak his word to meet our needs. And so, that was challenging. It was interesting that I twice this week I, I, I read similar from two completely different sources. So let's look at the passage we've read uh, this morning. We looked last week at uh, Numbers 14 and we saw how disastrous the whole situation was, wasn't it? They had uh, gone as far as the entrance to the promised land and they had refused to go in. And God had judged them harshly. And if you go back to uh, chapter 14 and look at verse 29, God said, Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against us, doubtless ye shall not come into this land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein. That was God's judgment on these people who had decided that they would, they tried in their own strength then to go up. They had open rebellion against Moses and against Joshua and Aaron and Caleb. And they took up stones to stone them. There was open rebellion against the leadership. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They said we'll, make, we'll, we'll appoint a new leader and we'll go back to Egypt. And this was God's judgment. He says no. None of you are going to get into the land. Your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness. They were being judged. And they tried to go up themselves. They decided to, that they would go ahead and try. And they, they, they went up and they, they were defeated by the Canaanites. They were routed. And then we come to this chapter. Chapter 15 and verse 2. When ye be come into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you. Isn't that amazing? God had said, you're not going to. You're not going to. But now, he says, when you come into the land, when you... Which I give unto you. God had a plan and his purpose and his will will be fulfilled. And was going to be fulfilled despite all these murmurers. Despite all the rebels. God's plan was there. Let us never think. Let us never think. As some would have us believe that God is feeble and useless without our cooperation God had a plan that these people were going to go in and nothing was going to frustrate that plan you are going to possess this land and here is how you are to worship me when you take possession of it that's what he was saying 
because one generation had miserably failed again God's promises still were as sure and certain as when he first made them to, to Abraham years and years before he said this is the land which you are going to have and look they're still in it it wasn't dependent on a few murmurers rebelling against God in the wilderness God's plans look at 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us in God who hath sealed us and also given us the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. God will fulfill his promises. That's what this is saying. He's not going to, to, to I was going to say Welsh on them. I, I, as I was thinking about this last, the Americans say, period. You know? God will fulfill his promises, period. That's it. There's no argument about it. God, that's all there is to say about it. God will fulfill his promises. That's it. He won't be frustrated by you and by me. God will fulfill his promises. And you know, that's encouraging, isn't it, for you and for me this morning. God will fulfill his promises. We foul things up. We get discouraged. Things seem to be going well and then the future suddenly seems bleak and obscure and we're anxious. God will fulfill his promises. You know, we, we say, we're so sure that God has guided us along a certain path. These people, God said, it's the land of your habitations. And that's the secret, isn't it? Where are we dwelling? Have we sought the Lord as our habitation, as our dwelling place? Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 71 verse 3. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandment to save me. Thou art my rock and my fortress. That's where the psalmist was going to abide. That's where his habitation was. That's where he was banking his life on. Dwelling in a rock and in a fortress. In God. He got the support there. Psalm 91 verse 9 and 10. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy dwelling place, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Oh yes, I'm going to dwell in the secret places of the Most High. The amazing thing about all this is that we want to, to dwell in God, in Christ. But you know, as we saw when we looked at the tabernacle, 
The amazing thing was that God desired to dwell with his people. And the psalmist puts that nicely in Psalm 132 and verse 13. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. He wanted to dwell with the people. That's why they built the tabernacle as we saw that whole series was the whole point of it was. Are we dwelling in him and is he dwelling in us? And that's the secret isn't it? Where are we dwelling? And with whom are we dwelling? Then comes all the various offerings and sacrifices which the children of Israel were to offer when they were in their new habitation. And as we go through our life with, with, with God and with Christ indwelling us through the power of his spirit, we have to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We're not going to go into all those various uh, uh, offerings and, and, and sacrifices. We'll do that some other day. But you know, we used to sing, I'm living on the mountain underneath a cloudless sky. I'm drinking at the fountain that never will run dry, never shall run dry. It's even more definite. I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply, for I am dwelling in Beulah land. I'm living on the mountain underneath a cloudless sky. I'm drinking at the fountain that never shall run dry. I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply, for I am dwelling in Beulah land. And if you look at Isaiah 62, 62 verse 4, For thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. That's what the person was thinking of when he wrote that little chorus. God said of Israel, My delight is in her. That's what Hephzibah means. My delight is in her. God delighted in Israel. And he delighted in her so much that he wanted to come and dwell amongst her. And then he says, thy land shall be called Beulah. And that means married. Israel was the wife of Jehovah. And Christ is the bridegroom of the church. The Lord delighted in Israel. He wanted to, 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 to come and dwell with Israel in the tabernacle. You see, Israel was precious to God. And you're precious to God. You're so precious to God that he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That's how precious you are. Is he precious to you? Is Christ precious to you this morning? You know, that rough, lovable fisherman, Peter, I, I always could identify somehow with Peter. He, he was, a, he was a, a great character. And he was like the rest of us. He, he spoke before he thought. His brain wasn't in action before he said some things. And he got, he got mixed up sometimes because of that. 
But he was the one also who betrayed his, his Lord with oaths and cursings. And if you were to say to Peter, <clears throat> you know, we sang that little chorus last week, what is he to you? Others know his saving grace, feel the sunshine of his face, in their hearts give him first place. What is he to you? If you'd said the same question to Peter, Peter, what, what is he to you? Do you know what I think he'd say? I think he'd say, oh, he is precious. Precious. Eight times in his epistles, Peter says, precious. Things are precious. All to do with his salvation. All to do with his, his, his life with Christ. Oh, and his service. We saw in that little bit I read that Peter was asked three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my flock. Feed my flock. Yes, Christ became precious to him. First Peter 1 verse 7, That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Oh yes, he said, my faith, has, his faith had undergone a, a tremendous trial, hadn't it? But he'd come out so strong at the end. So pure. Pure as gold. But he said that that was precious to me. The trial of our faith. Is precious he says. Though it be tried with fire. Might be found. <coughs> when you come out the other end. Of all these trials. That it might be to the praise. And honour. And glory. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes to take us to be with himself 1 Peter 1 verse 9 he talks about our salvation but he says it's not being redeemed I haven't been redeemed by silver and gold or any traditions or anything like that he says no but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Or oh, the lamb of God. His blood was precious to Peter. Precious. First Peter 2 verse 4. And we're coming to him. He says like a building. We all know a bit about building. And he says this. We're coming to him. As unto a living stone. The builders have rejected it. The world has rejected Christ. The world has cast him aside. But to Peter, he says, he's chosen of God and precious. Precious. Same thought in 1 Peter 2 verse 6. He says, wherefore else also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. The main part of the building precious and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded you won't be confounded if you put your faith and trust in Christ you'll find like Peter that he is precious then in 1 Peter 2 verse 7 unto you therefore who believe he is precious do you have this attitude? Is, is he precious to you? What is he to you? Others know his saving grace. Feel the sunshine of his face. In their hearts give him first place. 
What is he to you? First Peter three verse four. Be but let it be hidden man let it be the hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price precious having a meek and quiet spirit before God that's something which God regards as precious the very first verse of Second Peter he says Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith Oh, the faith that he had got through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ to Peter was precious. And here's the one which will apply to what we're talking about this morning. Second Peter 1 verse 4 Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Oh he says we have these promises of God. And we have become indwelt by the divine Holy Spirit. And these promises are precious. Everything to do with his Christian life. Peter regarded as precious. And you know if you have a diamond. Or something which has great value. You make sure you look after it. Don't you? And Peter did. When he was going down from the gate beautiful. Going up to the temple. And the man who was there who was lame. And had been carried and left there for years and years and years. And Peter and John were passing him. And they. He cried out. And they said we haven't any money. But he said you see. The thing was Peter realized that he hadn't been redeemed with silver and gold but he gave to that man the opportunity of jumping and leaping in the power of Christ he says silver and gold have I none but I'm going to give you something which is precious in the name of Jesus Christ rise up I'm giving you the most precious thing that I have the power of God in your life silver and gold have I none but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Walking, leaping, praising God. He went down, jumping around. He, he, money was no good to that man. He gave him something which was precious. He gave him the opportunity to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us ensure that we do not treat... God lightly and the gifts which he has given to us treat them as precious you know in, in, in Deuteronomy one of the, the things that God had against the children of Israel was that they lightly esteemed the rock of their salvation they treated God lightly they got used to God being in their presence they treated him lightly they lightly esteemed the rock of their salvation. Let's go back to Numbers 15. You know, 
<coughs> these two chapters. Man has failed. And always has failed. In the Garden of Eden, the flood, the wilderness, the time of the judges and the kings. It's a, a, a catalogue of the failure of man. Right up to the present day, man fails. But the abiding love and graciousness and surety of God and his promises endure. That's what, this, that's what we can learn from this. You know, I was looking, reading a little bit about chapter 14 and uh, chapter 15 this week. And you know, the bit that really excites you is verse 14. If a stranger sojourn with you, or whosoever be among you in your generations, and will offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord, as ye do, so he shall do. Israel had been condemned in chapter 14. We saw that. They were going to be... Their carcasses were going to be left in the wilderness. So on what grounds then were they able to come before God? They came before God pleading God's mercy. On what grounds were the stranger going to come before God? He was going to plead the mercy of God. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 But God who is rich in mercy for his great love for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are ye saved. God's mercy is shown to us. He sees the state we're in as a result of our sin. He sees the Israelites there in the state they're in as a result of their sin. He sees you and me in the state we're in as a result of sin in our lives. And he is merciful towards us. And then through his grace he saves us. Mercy doesn't save us. But God's mercy is shown to us. And then the apostle says, by grace you are saved. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The wonderful thing was that this, this man, this stranger, could plead God's mercy. Oh yes, the, the, the children of Israel had failed. God had condemned them. But they appealed to God's mercy. The mercy of the Lord. God who is rich in mercy. Paul when he's speaking to the Romans he says now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises of God made unto the fathers God was merciful to Israel and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name and again he says rejoice ye Gentiles with his people and again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and Lord him, all ye people. We have been included into the wonderful mercy of God. 
and his salvation through Jesus Christ through his grace not by works of righteousness Titus 3 5 not by works of righteousness which he have done but according to his mercy he saved us how did he save us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost we are saved by the grace of God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and through his death but because God has shown us mercy and we in turn should show mercy to others we can show mercy but it's only through grace which is the work of God in our hearts that we will be saved we are debtors to mercy you know I looked up an old hymn that we used to sing and it covers this whole subject completely this hymn listen to it very carefully a debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing nor fear with thy righteousness on thy righteousness on not my righteousness the righteousness of Christ nor fear with thy, thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do my saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view the work which his goodness began the arm of his strength will complete his promises yea and amen and never was forfeited yet things future nor things that are now nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love my name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase God's names are on the palms of his my names on the palms of his hands scripture tells us and he says here my name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace yes I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given more happy but not more secure the glorified spirits in heaven do you get that yes I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given the earnest is the Holy Spirit and as sure as I have the Holy Spirit in my life he says I to the end shall endure that's my guarantee that's my deposit that's my surety that I will get eternal life completed in heaven it's reserved it will not fade away it's reserved in heaven for me more happy the glorified saints in heaven are more happy but he says they're no more secure than I am isn't that wonderful what gracious, merciful and a precious God our God is don't treat him lightly bow our heads in love and gratitude and praise and worship and adoration and give him thanks, seek his forgiveness for our lack of love our coolness our selfishness and then 
like Paul says in Philippians as we looked a few weeks ago rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice Amen